Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Before we start, we have to let you know that you can sign up to our 30-day free digital trial and get access to the New Scientist app. It's available on iOS and Android smartphone or tablet devices. The launch of our in-app audio feature means there has never been a better time to join New Scientist. Tune in for news, features, comment and more from the world's leading science and technology weekly. Listen to all available audio content from any one issue in one go for maximum convenience, whether you're on the move, relaxing, whatever you're doing. Uh, the audio content is fantastic, actually. Sign up for our free trial today at newscientist.com slash 30 days. That's three zero days. Newscientist.com slash 30 days. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your co-host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarchet. This week, we're joined by New Scientist reporters Adam Vaughan and Graham Lawton. Hello to you both. Hi. Hello. And we welcome back on the pod climate scientist Tamsin Edwards from King's College London. Hello again, Tamsin. No surprise, this week we're going to focus on the latest IPCC climate report, but we've also got a fascinating piece looking at the development and marketing of artificial milk. Yeah, we mentioned this on the pod last year and I've been really looking forward to it ever since. Uh, We've also got news of a newly discovered carnivorous plant. But first, we're devoting a good chunk of the show this week to the IPCC report. You'll have certainly seen and heard the reaction over the last few days. This is the sixth assessment report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And this week's chunk was summarising the latest on the physical basis of climate change. One of the big take-home messages was that 1.5 degrees of warming is now pretty much locked in within the next 20 years, regardless of what we do to cut emissions. It also said that we could see a rise of 4.4 degrees by the end of this century in a worst-case scenario. So before we get into what it said, what did people make of that? Because, I mean, even though we've been reporting and discussing this problem for years, I I found it really, it still hit me pretty hard because, you know, it underlined how the window of opportunity to react to to do something is closing, you know, and then also there's the year of all the extreme weather events we've had. Um, What did you make of it, Penny? Yeah, I've I've really been struggling with that feeling of, oh, has it been eight years already since the last one? Um, 
we're pretty much bang out of time, aren't we, to stay below 1.5 degrees. And I just feel so overwhelmingly let down, really, by governments uh, worldwide for not stepping up the Paris commitments from 2015 or finding ways to rein in carbon emitting industries in the last eight years. I mean, yeah, pretty devastating, really. Adam, you're a, you're a veteran reporter of this. What? How did you react to it? Uh, I think I've been swinging between uh, feeling paralysed and feeling galvanised, uh, which is, uh, yeah. I think... You know, there is obviously a lot of bad news in there. Um, but I guess as an eternal optimist, I sort of found myself clinging on to the, the life boy of or the life ring of, of, of um, the fact that a world under 1.5 degrees is still possible. That that really is a clear message from the report. It's just that we're going to need a lot of action to get there. Yeah, I was just angry, to be honest with you, after all these years of obfuscation and denial and delay and people saying, you know, we can live with it and stuff. Just the It's not like we didn't warn people 30 years ago that this was coming. You know, why has it taken a report like this to make people wake up? Yeah. Now, Tamsin, you're in a special position because you were one of the lead authors of the report. First of all, tell us what your role was, actually, as part of that um, working group one. I was one of what we call the lead authors of the report, which actually just means authors. Um, (laughs) There are kind of different levels of authors, but basically it just means author. Uh, In other words, we were writing the text and having it reviewed by the full community. I think it was something like 80,000 comments we had to respond to in lots of spreadsheets um, saying exactly what we'd done and why and how we'd taken into account those review comments. So it's very much a community effort, you know, us sort of 18 chapter authors in in my chapter on oceans, cryosphere and sea level change, we do our best to represent the whole community. But it's been, you know, a long old process. It's been um, three years, I actually had the the kind of call, if you like, to become an author around the time I got diagnosed with cancer. And so it's all kind of wrapped up in the same timeframes for me. You know, I delayed chemotherapy by a week to go to the first meeting in China and wow. all the sort of um, late night and weekend meetings, trying to fit those around work. Uh, we often don't get time off work to do this uh, around my kind of health since the therapy, the chemotherapy. Yeah. And um, it's been an emotional process. You know, I, yeah. I, I got a bit Thierry this morning just thinking about it all and I think we all are sort of very proud to have got the report out um it represents a huge amount of time and and effort and and blood if you like and guts of the authors um it's been huge and and all we can do is is get it out there and and help, help people to understand it really yeah, I think that's something that can be said more and more is the the dedication of uh, the climate scientists, the work they put in behind the scenes is something that doesn't get bigged up enough. Um, Adam, I've I've heard quite a few people saying, you know, for example, Greta saying there's not, not much new in the report and certainly nothing much surprising. Uh, was that your take home from it? I don't, not really. I don't know if Greta's read all the 14,000 papers they reviewed for the report over the last few years at Tamsin and the 200 plus other authors. I mean, I guess Greta's point was, you know, that we know knew the broad thrust and the broad contours of climate change, right? But there is clearly new stuff in here. Um, you know, I think the fact that there was stuff about when we were going to cross 1.5 in the special report three years ago. But, you know, I think the fact that this is so clear that that is going to come within the next 20 years and that it's only what we do with emissions that decides whether we stay under it later. Um, I think that was really important. I think, um, you know, the, the fact that humanity's role is now unequivocal up from clear eight years ago, that that has obviously been pulled out by a lot of people. And I think that 
I, I always thought this point that a lot of the changes that we've wrought are irreversible, sort of for, you know, on this time scale of hundreds of years or thousands of years. That was quite striking. I mean, there's loads of other stuff. One other thing I would just single out is the fact that it's now sort of statement of fact that, you know, extreme weather is linked to climate change and the way we've changed the climate. That also, I think, is very um, striking yeah. given the sort of weather, given the sort of weather we've had from and sort of events we've had from Canada to China to Germany to Greece and other parts of the world in, in recent months. Um, Adam, I, I've seen quite a lot of confusion about this 1.5 degrees. Um, have I got it right that we're basically locked in for more than 1.5 in the next 20 years? But the big thing we have to remember is that with action, we can then bring it down afterwards. Is that right? Yeah, in the near term, the next 20 years, we are locked into 1.5 just because of how much we've emitted already, basically. But, and this is the really, really key kicker, is that if we, there's five scenarios that the, the group looked at in terms of future how our emissions play out in the future and if we get on the very lowest of that then we only we basically end up overshooting 1.5 for a while and then temperatures actually come back down to about what and settle at about 1.4 before the end of the century so that's the sort of world we want to live in it's not the world we're on track for at the moment i should say and also actually it's not just about the the past greenhouse gas emissions locking us in. It is an acknowledgement that we cannot cut our emissions immediately to zero tomorrow. So it is also about the the expected emissions over those next 10, 20 years as well. And there was a lot more detail this in this report compared with the special report of one and a half degrees in 2018 on looking at the different scenarios of emissions over this this next 10 to 20 years. And so that is also part of the story, definitely, because clearly you can't just cut everything to zero instantaneously. Are there any other points, Tamsin, that you want to take this opportunity to amplify here that we might not have heard so much about over the last few days? I think there are important points to make around that idea of human influence, because We've always, um, you know, we've known for a long time that um, humans influence the global mean temperature, um, so the global warming aspect. And there are many more statements this this time around human influence on specific aspects of climate change, which had had only been described really as changing before. So things like glaciers retreating, the Arctic sea ice retreating as well sea level rise. These are aspects that now have what we call formal attribution studies. So that's where we do, for example, computer simulations with only the natural factors influencing climate and compare those to simulations where we have both the natural and the human. And then we compare those, of course, to the data, to the observations. So that's what we mean when we say we're attributing human influence. There's a kind of a a formal definition where we look at what we literally call the fingerprints of humans on climate and that's been done for all these different aspects of climate change. I think there are there are some pretty striking things in sea level rise and flooding. Yeah, well, we had you on the show earlier in, in the year, and that's when you'd published that paper showing that if we kept to 1.5 degrees, we could halve sea level rise by the end of the century compared to the, the three degrees of warming. So is that is that how you made those those projections? Yeah, so my exactly my area is um global mean sea level rise. Um, But those predictions then get used by the people who do the regional sort of relative sea level rise around the world, which can, which is generally, um, well, we've assessed that to be generally uh, within 20% of the global mean. So I think it's two thirds of of regions around the world will be within 20% of the global mean, but you can get very large variations because of 
the patterns of ocean circulation because of the land either lifting up or sinking after the changes in ice on the land from the last ice age and also subsidence if we've got things like groundwater extraction or fossil fuel extraction that can make the land sink very quickly so all of those kinds of things will make local sea level very different sometimes to the global mean either better or worse and there was um a statement in the report that under the the low emission scenario, so it's the sort of two degrees scenario, around 60% of the locations around the world where we have tide gauges measuring this relative sea level will go from um, what is currently a one one in a century flood event, so a 1% chance of that event, through to something like um, annually or more by the end of the century. And then that goes up from 60% to 70 or 80% at higher levels of warming. So this is a huge change. It shows that climate change isn't just about mitigation. It's not just about reducing emissions and thinking, well, we can somehow avoid further climate change. There will be more climate change. And some of those aspects are things that we will have to adapt to, even if we manage to stabilise or even reverse global warming. They are things that we will have to change in terms of our sea defences, possibly where we live as well. And do some of the drawdown scenarios or some of the if we overshoot and we have to drag it back down a bit does some of those scenarios rely on carbon drawdown technologies that we haven't quite got working at scale yet because that's been a criticism of some IPCC projections in the past hasn't it yeah so the the topic of uh, either reducing emissions or of extracting greenhouse gases back out of the atmosphere so carbon dioxide removal it is more the focus of the working group three report that will come out next year But you're right, in the summary for policymakers, it is mentioned because if we're going to stabilise temperatures at any level, we need to get to net zero CO2 emissions and and really strongly reduce other greenhouse gases. And to do that, we think we need some degree of increased carbon dioxide removal. And the most famous of those methods is planting trees. But what we've seen in not only the one and a half degree report, but actually the, the special report on the land that came in 2019, is that we, we haven't got enough land actually to do it just with trees. Um, and even if we do use trees, we have to be careful we're planting the right kind of trees. Are they good for the local biodiversity, for people's livelihoods and so on? We can't just plant big monocultures across the whole globe and hope that will fix the problem. It's just not going to be enough. It's going to only be part of the solution. You know, there are lots and lots of ideas around what we call nature based solutions to remove carbon dioxide. So not just planting trees, but planting bamboo, um, preserving peatlands and stopping them from emitting CO2 and methane uh, and, and many others. Yeah, kelp and seaweed. Exactly. These kind of anything green that will that will take up CO2, uh, but also technological and chemical solutions. So there are some interesting ideas about how to trap CO2 um, in the air and pull it into a a carbonate form, which is essentially rock. There's a really nice project in Iceland, actually, um, where they mineralise the CO2 by pulling it down into the basalt. There are other uh, technologies I've seen where they they use the carbonates in in fertiliser or in concrete as the aggregate. And these are all um, sort of chemical methods that, that trap the CO2 with no chance of it escaping, you know, if a tree dies or and decomposes or a set fire, of course, wildfires becoming more likely that that carbon isn't as secure as if it's just literally turned into rock so some of these methods are really interesting and and we might call those not carbon capture and storage but carbon capture and usage is a term we think i think we're going to hear more of but all of Mm. all of that kind of detail will will be will be talked about more in next year's report 
there were quite a few headlines um, in response to the report that emphasised the irreversible nature of some of the changes. And some people complained that that fed a doomerism state of mind, that the idea that we've, we're already, you know, we're already screwed. What's the response to that? Well, first of all, is we, we can't change reality to fit sort of some kind of goal of communications. Unfortunately, if we assess that something is, is irreversible or committed, then we have to say that. But I think we do try in the summary for policymakers and in, in the key messages to say there are aspects of climate change that can be reversible, that can be slowed down, that can be avoided or stopped, and try to put that up there alongside the irreversible changes so that so that it's it's clear. I mean, something like Arctic sea ice, I think, is a topic that has changed over the years, and and sometimes public awareness of of topics will will naturally follow after the scientific understanding, and that's that's an area where we think if we manage to limit temperature change and even bring it back down, Arctic sea ice loss could be reversible because it does respond quite directly to global temperature. So if we can lower that temperature again, then we can regrow the lost um, summer sea ice. I think there are other areas um, where, you know, these kind of tipping points, this phrase has, has really taken hold of the of the public imagination uh, and concern. So not just sea ice in the Arctic, but also permafrost. And permafrost is something I I get asked about um, on Twitter and things that people are very concerned about. This idea that the the warming we're causing is is thawing this frozen ground of the north, which leads to release of methane and also carbon dioxide in an amplifying feedback, in a in a self-sustaining feedback. And that's you know that's definitely a, a physical kind of process that we that we expect, but the predictions are for much um, slower and smaller releases than I think most people think. It's much more at the kind of, you know, few percent of our remaining carbon budget or, you know, perhaps a few years of human emissions. It's not at the scale of kind of blowing everything out of the water and turning us into Venus. And that's something that, you know, it's important to get across that we that we assess these risks and we know that they're there and they're important and they make things worse. They make it harder to keep to the carbon budget, but they're not something that's going to suddenly turn this planet into a 10 degree hothouse of warming. In terms of getting fatalistic as well, Tamsin, you, you and colleagues were very clear, weren't you, that, um, you know, even though those some of those changes, like, for example, to the oceans around acidification and so on, are irre- irreversible over a really long time, we can slow the rate of change, can't we? Even that was a key point you made, I thought. That's right. You know, sea level is going to go up this century, but the rate at which it goes up depends on us. And uh, and that doesn't just apply to this century. It very, very much applies in the longer term as well. There's a, a pretty striking graph in the summary for policymakers, which shows sea level rise this century. And then on more or less the same scale, there's a a vertical bar to the right of that showing sea level rise at the year 2300 under two different scenarios, low and very high greenhouse gas emissions. And, um, you know, it goes to sort of many metres. I mean, you know, it goes to the, you know, it's half a page of of the graph, which is very concerning. But it also shows the huge difference between the low emission scenario and the very high, the very high emission scenario has a has a sort of a dotted arrow that goes to even higher values that go off the graph, which is the sort of, you know, this hypothesis that Antarctica could be 
quite unstable under very high greenhouse gas emissions. We don't have yet enough evidence to know if that's the case. Uh, we haven't yet been able to rule it out, which is why we included it in there. But that instability really doesn't seem to kick in at low greenhouse gas emission scenarios. So the sort of two degree type scenarios. So that's something where we really have a lot of influence over not just this century, but centuries to come. If we can keep global warming to something like two degrees, keep it stable at that level and ideally reduce it back down towards pre-industrial levels, then then we're, you know, reasonably confident, um, somewhat confident that we can make a big difference to that long term sea level rise. Amid my sort of general depression over um, over the coverage and, and what we've been learning from the IPCC report this week, I was inspired or felt galvanised, to use Adam's word, just by the, the fact that every bit of warming counts. So yes, we're locked into all sorts of things, but every single thing we can do to reduce our, car- our carbon emissions will make a difference to make the future slightly less disastrous. So I think even though there's a lot of doomerism and there's a, a lot of doom and gloom, that's actually such a strong message um, that, that we really should keep on the fight. It will make a difference. That's right. We we need to avoid any of this kind of talk of it's too late or we're going over the cliff edge or the point of no return. I mean, this isn't based in science. It's based in fear or, or misunderstanding of the science or, you know, of course, genuine concern. But really, exactly. It's a spectrum. It's a it's a gradation. It's something where every ton of CO2 and every 0.1 degrees of warming will will make a difference that we that we can save. That, that's right. We interrupt this podcast to bring you news of a new audio product from New Scientist. Yes, subscribers are now able to listen to stories from the world's leading science and technology weekly through the app. We've teamed up with audio production company Sound Understanding to bring you professionally voiced and recorded versions of stories from the magazine each week. It's the exact same content, but in spoken form. It's easy to take part in the New Scientist audio experience. Just go to newscientist.com app. Download the issue and explore. Wherever you see a headphones icon, that's where audio content is available and it's all free to subscribers. We hope you enjoy the new app. Check it out and happy listening. And we're back. Our next story follows nicely from the IPCC report we've been talking about. Yeah, the climate report is all about the consequences of us having put too much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere, of course. And one big source of that is agriculture and in particular cattle farming. Uh, Graham, you've got a big piece in the mag this week all about this and about a solution. Yeah, yeah. So cattle farming is like an environmental horror show. Producing milk in a live animal is fantastically inefficient and the dairy industry alone is responsible for 4% of our greenhouse gas emissions. Well, 4%, we can live with that, can't we? We can't live with that. You know, we have to tackle every source of greenhouse gas. And even though 4% sounds small, it's actually more than shipping and aviation combined. Wow, that, that's pretty huge then. And um, on top of all of that, it's pretty ethically troubling too, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there are huge animal welfare issues in, in dairy farming. I won't go into the gory details, but you, you, know, you don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I've managed to switch to oat milk. Oh, that's pretty okay. But vegan cheese is the really tough hurdle for me. Is there a solution there? Yeah, I mean, they are actually quite poor substitutes, but there is there are new options on the table. So with meat, we've heard all about a couple of solutions. There's cultured meat on the one hand, which is lab grown meat and plant based meat alternatives on the other. But in between those two is this neglected but potentially really significant technology called precision fermentation. 
which is basically brewing up animal products in genetically modified bacteria, no animals involved. You know, it's an existing proven technology that, you know, unlike cultured meat, doesn't need new safety tests or new technology to scale it right up. And you can pretty much make any animal product you like this way. Milk, at least milk protein, is leading the way. And it's actually already on the market in the form of ice cream. Wow. I want to eat that ice cream. So I guess, like you've said before, when we had you on the show talking about cultured shrimp meat, is it easier to make that? Like, it's easier to make milk. It's easier to make shrimp because it's less complex than beef, like structurally. Is that why milk is easier to make? Yeah, yeah. Milk is really simple. It's essentially just a few proteins, some fat and a bit of sugar suspended in water. And you can easily make those proteins in a GM bacterium, large amounts of them. And they're exactly the same as the ones that you get from a cow. Now, there are many other products in the pipeline too. The egg, you won't be able to make a whole egg with a yolk, but you can make egg white and uh, sort of scrambled egg. Animal fats, collagen and blood to add to meat alternatives and even human breast milk. You know, think of an animal product and somewhere somebody is fermenting it. And there's materials as well, too. So things like horn and feathers and fur are all being precision fermented, believe it or not. I mean, I'm personally also hugely excited by this as I strive not to eat animal products, but I really struggle to quit cheese. Uh, That's the one thing that I think would make my life immensely better. Uh, Would you eat it, Rowan? Oh, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, I would definitely eat it. Um I mean, you know, if anyone's listening who's manufacturing this and wants us to test it, um, send us some samples and we'll we'll test it. Uh, would you eat it, Penny? Yeah, I think so. Um, if I'm right, Graham, this technology is basically how we've been making things like insulin for diabetics for years now, isn't it? It's just putting a gene in a bacterium and, and growing it up in a fermenter. Yeah, it's already an established food technology. Uh, rennet, which is used to make cheese, is actually made this way. Uh, so even if people are saying, I, w- I won't touch it, if you're eating cheese, you're already touching it. And I've heard from the people who make the ice cream, and actually some people who've tasted it, that it's exactly the same as the real thing. Next up, we have a killer tobacco plant. Uh, Penny, why is this news? Because we know tobacco kills, right? Yeah, we do know that. But this is actually something else entirely. Uh, We're talking about a newly described species of wild tobacco that kills insects. Wow. So is it is it like a Venus flytrap or a pitcher plant? Those, you know, those carnivorous plants we know about? It's quite different, actually. And and that's why this is really interesting. Um, If you're a gardener, you may already be familiar with Nicotianas. Uh, These are quite attractive flowering plants related to the species that we farm to make tobacco products. And these look nothing like the weird carnivorous plants you may already be familiar with. They don't have snapping jaws or trap doors or or any sort of uh, big eye-catching adaptations for catching insects. Okay, well, so how, how do they do it? So researchers uh, were looking for new Nicotiana species across Australia and they came across this one particular plant that is covered with sticky hair glands. And these glands work a bit like you might know um, sundews, that's a different type of carnivorous plant, um, not closely related. And they catch small insects like flies, aphids and gnats in this sort of a way. The team discovered this plant. Um, it was growing by a truck stop off the northwest coastal highway in Western Australia. And when they collected seed and planted it back at Kew Gardens in London, they found that the plants were sticky again and they ensnared insects inside the greenhouses back in London too. Wow. So um, has it got a name? 
Yep, they've named it Nicotiana Insecticida, which is pretty neat. You can guess yeah. the meaning there. But it's still quite mysterious. Yeah. Um, we don't know yet what it gains from killing insects in this way. It doesn't necessarily feed on them. The team are currently designing experiments to test if the plant is somehow extracting nutrients from the insects that it kills. Um, but it could just be that killing insects like uh, aphids, uh, which are pests that would otherwise attack the plant, it could just be that stopping them from doing that is beneficial. That brings to mind the idea that it could be used to to control aphids or in, insect pests. Yeah, so I did wonder about that. Um, and I asked Mark Chase from Q, who is one of the project leaders. He reminded me that, of course, there are very strict rules about cashing in on, on plant biodiversity. So the permits that he was given to collect plants in Australia strictly prohibit doing stuff like this. That's part of the rules and regulations that ensure that any commercial uses from natural species profit the countries where they were found. And in turn, those profits can then be fed back into conservation. But yes, in theory, if the Australian authorities decided to approve Nicotiana insecticida for commercial use, then potentially it could be useful. Um, Mark said the plant is fairly straightforward to grow. So potentially you could uh, use it in your greenhouse to kill things like aphids and fungus gnats. Okay, that's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Adam Vaughan, Graham Lawton and Tamsin Edwards. And thanks to you for listening. As always, do go to newscientist.com slash pod 20 to subscribe and enjoy all the content of the magazine, plus audio versions of the stories with a 20% discount. That link again, newscientist.com slash pod 20. That's it. Thanks again. Do spread the word and we'll see you next week. Bye bye. 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 Next up, uh, we have a killer tomato. <laughs> tomato. <laughs> this podcast is produced by Ollie Giu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.